Our text this morning is 1 John 5, 18 through 19. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, good morning. Uh, Thank you for joining us virtually as we await the end of uh, the pandemic when we can finally meet again. My name is Jared Lawson. I'm the pastoral resident here at Parkway Church, or the man criteri, I think is what Zach uh, called me last week. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in 1 John 5, 18 through 19 this morning. Uh, And while you gather your Bible and turn there, I'll just tell you a little story about church history. Uh, I love church history, as should you. And Martin Luther is one of the great figures of church history, the great reformer of the church. And he has many stories uh, about how he would battle the devil, not like MMA type stuff, uh, but where the devil would come and condemn him and he would fight back with the gospel. Uh, And one night in particular, the devil came to him, most likely in a dream, and began to condemn him. Began to say things like, Luther, who do you think you are that you can go reform the church? Look at all of your sin. Look at these sins that you do. Look at these things that you neglect that you should do. Who do you think you are? First of all, shouldn't you reform yourself, fix yourself before you ever try uh, to reform God's church? And Luther says, that's a great point, devil. Why don't you take a piece of paper and a pen and write out all of my sins. And so the devil, as the story goes, rejoices at the opportunity to accuse Luther and begins to write out all of Luther's sins. Luther asks him, have you finished? And he says, oh yes, I have. And what a great dark list that it is. Surely this is bad enough to show you you should never try and reform the church before you fix yourself. And Luther says, I agree with you, devil, that my sins before holy God are horrible. But as you're writing out my sins, when you finish with the last sin, write one more thing. Write one more thing over the entire list, this declaration, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And as the story goes, after that, the devil left him in peace. And similar to that story, John today in our text is going to point us to the things that we can take great confidence in. In the midst of a world filled with sin, in the midst of a world ruled by the devil, in the midst of self-condemnation, John is going to point us to where our hope is, to where our assurance is, to the things that we can be sure of. And the central message from John today is going to simply be this, take great confidence in your Savior. Take great confidence in your Savior. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in to the scriptures. Father, We love you. Uh, We long to meet together once again. We just pray that as we uh, are meeting uh, through technology that you would continue just to knit our church together. Lord, that your word would speak to us just as powerfully, that your spirit would be uh, ministering to our hearts just as much, that your word today would not fall on deaf ears, that it would give us great confidence, that we would no longer uh, fear uh, the enemy in this world, that we would no longer listen to the lies of self-condemnation, but would rather uh, see our Savior in a glorious light, uh, that we would see what you have done in sending your Son and sending your Spirit to redeem us uh, in a new light, that we would have great confidence in you as our protector. We pray in your Son's holy name. Amen. Let's look at verse 18 together. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. 
So those first two words, we know, are going to kind of set the context of our whole passage today. We know. These are things that we take absolute confidence in. John's going to begin to list these things. And these aren't debatable things. These aren't things that we hope may be true in the future or anything like that. These are things that we know for sure, right? We have absolute confidence in. I have a couple things in my life that I know for a fact, that I know for sure. You might have some as well. For instance, I know how uh, I am going to die. Uh, I don't know when I'm going to die, but I do know how uh, I'm going to die. And simply, I will die of a heart attack uh, as a result of the volume of my wife's sneezes. It is truly unbelievable how loud her sneezes are. I hate being scared. It makes my friendship with Tim basically impossible. Uh, And I have been on the other side of the house with headphones in, and she will sneeze, and I will still jump. Uh, And so simply one day, my heart will just stop from that. I'll get scared so much that I'll have a heart attack and die. So that's how I will die. I also know that when I come to work, if I mention any sort of musical fact or anything about music around Carl or Tim, uh, I'm going to get shown a YouTube video of the greatest bass player of all time, and I'm going to have to pretend like it sounds incredible and not like every other bass player I've ever heard in my life. Uh, I also know that if Zach gets bored at work, uh, he will come into my office and try and teach me some sort of tactical lesson on how to take a room in a hostage situation comes in all all giddy and he's like, let me show you how we got bin Laden. You kneel here. I'm going to come around the left flank. It's great. Uh, I know those things uh, for a fact, right? Those are things I absolutely know for sure. Similarly, John is saying, these are the things that we know. These aren't debatable things. We know them for a fact. So what's the first thing we know? Firstly, we know that our Savior has set us free from sin. Our Savior has set us free from sin. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So we've seen both of these kind of phrases, born of God and does not keep on sinning already multiple times throughout the letter. We've seen born of God quite a bit. We've talked about it uh, at length. Just simply this idea that as we've been brought into God's family, right, redeemed and brought into God's family as his sons and daughters, we begin to kind of bear the marks of our heavenly father. As the spirit indwells us, we kind of bear the fruit of the spirit, right? we're, We're born of God. We've seen that quite a bit. John uses that phrase again here. And then secondly, we've seen this term uh, does not keep on sinning in chapter three. Uh, Both Jeff and Zach uh, preached on uh, this idea. And kind of our gut reaction to this is typically fear. We typically freak out, uh, okay, believers do not keep on sinning. I sinned today. So does that mean I'm not a believer? And we kind of go down that uh, trail. Uh, But we think, you know, he must be teaching Christian perfectionism. But that can't be the case because John himself has said in this very letter in chapter one, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So he can't be talking about Christian perfectionism or anything like that. So what does he mean? What does he mean? Simply, uh, all throughout this letter, those who are born of God, believers, have been distinguished from the world by the way they relate to God's word, God's people, how we relate to one another, right? We love one another. We no longer hate one another and how we relate to sin. As those born of God, there's now a fundamental shift 
in the way that we relate to sin. It doesn't mean that we stop sinning, right? That we live this perfect life. What it does mean is that sin doesn't own you anymore. Sin does not own you anymore. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer captive under its power. Uh, Several years ago, my wife and I traveled to Normandy, France. Uh, when I go to Europe, I like to travel to places like France because unlike German-loving Tim, I was cheering for the Allies to win World War II. Uh, so we went to uh, Normandy and went kind of on the tours as, as you do. And one of the things that I became fascinated by was stories of the French citizens uh, who had been liberated from captivity. They were being held captive for about four years, occupied by the Germans. And after D-Day, of course, there's this giant celebration. Uh, And in fact, there was so much celebration that the uh, American soldiers were ordered no longer to party with the French civilians because they were getting too drunk to go fight. And so there's this great celebration. But here's the thing, the war wouldn't be over for a whole nother year. Though they've been set free from their captives, they still live in the midst of the reality of the war. They're still making incredible sacrifices. They still live as those who are captive in many ways. They have to kind of relearn what it's like to be free men while they await their ultimate freedom at the end of the war. And similarly here, John is saying, uh, the reality of sin isn't removed, right? There's no perfection this side of eternity, but sin doesn't own you anymore. Sin doesn't own you anymore. And we'll see uh, uh, in the following verse, the reason for this, the reason that those who are born of God do not continue in sin is because of Christ's salvation and protection. See, there's nothing on uh, your part or my part that has set us free from our sin. If it were up to us, we'd still be enslaved to sin, right? Jonathan Edwards says, all your righteousness would have no power to uphold you or keep you out of hell any more than a spider's web could stop a falling rock, right? God himself says, your, your righteousness are filthy rags. There's nothing on our end through our own effort that would ever set us free from our sin. Rather, this text is saying we know for sure that our Savior is the one who has set us free from our sin. So take confidence in him. And in this, there's no confusion, right? There's no confusion with John. This isn't debatable. This is joyful assurance, not just for eternity, but for now, And that may be important for some of us to hear. We have uh, so many that live under the burden of self-condemnation, hearing those lies that kind of creep up, that there's no way God could ever love you. If he accepts you, he does it begrudgingly because you're so horrible and he kind of has to, but surely you're not a Christian. Look at your own life. Kind of like that story with Luther and the devil. Look at your sin. There's no way God loves you. There's no way he could have ever redeemed you. And what this is, What this text is saying, thank God, is stop looking to yourself for your assurance and rather look at what Christ has done. Stop looking at yourself, your own performance for your assurance of your salvation, but look at your Savior. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ, Robert McChain says. He's the one that broke your chains. He's the one that took on your sin and gave you his righteousness in return. Stop looking to yourself for your confidence. Rather, look to him and take confidence that he has set you free from sin. So that's the first thing. That's the first element that John wants us to grab hold of. Our Savior has set us free from sin. But what else? Uh, What else does he want us to kind of take confidence in? Secondly, he's going to say, take confidence. Your Savior protects you from the evil one. Take confidence. Your Savior protects you from 
the evil one. Look at the rest of verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So we've already seen uh, believers in this text be addressed as those who are born of God. Uh, But here, uh, we're gonna see the only time in the entire letter that Jesus is called uh, born of God. So the question immediately arises, does believers being born of God and does Jesus being born of God mean the same thing or does it mean something totally different? Does it mean the same thing, being born of God and Jesus being born of God? Does it mean something totally different? And this is actually one of the earliest questions that the church ever had to answer. Uh, Arius uh, was a priest in Alexandria turned heretic. He's actually one of the bad guys you need to know. Uh, We don't just learn the good guys of church history. Uh, We need to know some of the bad guys as well, not just to know kind of the context of what's happening in these controversies, but mainly because though the heretics may die, their heresies never do. Arius has been dead for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, but both Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses both hold the heretical view of Jesus that Arius taught. So you need to know Arius. But Arius got himself into some trouble because he took biblical passages like this one that describe Jesus being born of God or begotten or the firstborn of all creation, things like that. And he concluded that Jesus was a created being that came into existence at some point. A created being that came into existence. There was once when he was not, was kind of Arius' famous saying. So Arius is saying, Jesus being born of God is like us being born of God. Jesus being born of God is like us being born of God. Or to use an image that we've used before, if you imagine there's a hard line between God the creator and all of creation, Arius says, Jesus goes below that line. Jesus goes below that line in the creation category. He's not the eternal creator. And the church's response to this was essentially to say uh, to Arius, you have completely misunderstood who the scriptures say Jesus is. And in fact, Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, uh, wrote a treatise against the Arians. And one of the things he did is he took all of Arius' favorite biblical passages and showed how Arius was interpreting them wrongly. And so the church response is to say that Jesus being born of God is nothing like us being born of God. Rather, the scriptural revelation of who Jesus is is that he is eternally God with the Father and the Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. At the Council of Nicaea, the church kind of gathered together to clarify what they believe the scriptures taught. And at that council, they said, with that kind of hard line between God the creator and all of creation, the son, Christ, goes above the line. Let me read the beginning of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, not made, the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things came into being. You see, he's not only from God, begotten of God, or born of God, he is God. He's not only from light, he is light. He's not a creation, rather, he's the one through whom all things came to be. 
See, Jesus being born of God is monumentally different than believers, you or I, being born of God. He is eternally born of God by his very nature. We are born of God by grace given to us, by adoption, by something outside of us bringing us into fellowship with God. You and I are made in the image of God. He is the exact image of God. We are created. He is the one through whom all things were created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So with that firmly defined, let's look back at verse 18. He who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So firstly, we see here the cause of the previous point that we looked at. The reason the believer does not continue in sin is completely because Christ is protecting him. This new relationship that we have to sin is because of Christ's protection, because he saves you and he now keeps you. He protects you from sin. I have a a son named Harvey. He's the baby uh, that Jeff and Zach continually fat shame on a number of occasions. And we kind of have a routine in the morning where uh, after Harvey wakes up, he gets to turn off the alarm, uh, the alarm system in our house. So Harvey will punch in the code. But in reality, he's eight months old and he has no ability to punch in the alarm code. One, two, three, four, five is a difficult code for an eight-month-old to remember. So... I take Harvey's hand and I'll wrestle out a little finger and I'll use his hand uh, to punch in the code. And that's similar to the picture that John is painting here. It is the believer, the one who is born of God that doesn't continue in sin. But the reason is because Christ is protecting him. It's important for you to see because we misunderstand this so much. It's so important for you to see that God doesn't just save you. Christ doesn't just save you and then move on right, justify you and then leave sanctification up to you. He's the founder and the perfecter of your faith. He who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to bring it to completion. He's the one keeping you. He's the one continually protecting you from sin. But John doesn't just stop there. He also says Christ protects you from the evil one. The evil one does not touch you. So we now have this new relationship to sin. We have a different relationship to sin. We also have a different relationship to the evil one. Before Christ's salvation, we were of our father, the devil, and our will was to do our father's desires. He held us captive and we preferred it that way. We had a sort of Stockholm syndrome for the devil, though he was doing nothing but leading us to our own destruction, keeping us in darkness, leading us towards death. We preferred him, right? But in Christ's salvation, he's shown us the light. We no longer walk in darkness. He not only pulls us into the light, he now protects us from the evil one. He doesn't just save us from him and again, move on. He continually protects us from the evil one, keeps us safe from him. A couple clarifiers. This doesn't mean uh, that you're never tempted, right? First Peter says the devil walks around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It doesn't mean you're never tempted. You will be tempted to fear to put your trust in anything other than God, you'll continually be tempted. It also doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to you. It doesn't mean you won't go through persecution, uh, the fact that the devil can't touch you. In fact, the Bible promises the opposite for those who follow Christ. Jesus himself in his great call to discipleship says in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. First Peter 4 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
but rejoice insofar as you have shared in Christ's sufferings. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So it doesn't mean that you won't go through persecution. You will go through persecution. Rather, what John is saying here is Christ is protecting you from the devil's ultimate touch. His ability to take away your salvation, his ability to pull you out of the light back into the darkness, the devil's ultimate touch. Parents understand this idea. Every parent knows that their kids will get bumps and bruises, they'll get scrapes from playing outside or whatever that Band-Aids will have to go over, but a parent will do everything in their power to pull their kid out of a busy street, right? Parents will protect their kids, do everything necessary to protect their kids from ultimate danger. And similarly here, John is saying, uh, Christ protects you from the devil's ultimate touch. You will go through temptation, you will go through persecution, but your salvation is not at stake. The evil one cannot touch you. You have a good shepherd who says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one can snatch them from my hand. Romans 8, 38 through 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights or depths nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Nothing can separate you from his love. The evil one cannot touch you because Christ is protecting you. So have confidence in his protection. Have confidence that he's a trustworthy protector. You can trust the character of your savior. Uh, I played football growing up uh, and I was good at it in high school, which is just to basically say I was faster than the other private school white kids. Uh, And so I went to go play football in college in Abilene. Uh, There are three Christian colleges in Abilene, a Baptist one, a Methodist one, and a Church of Christ one. They all hate each other. Uh, I went to one of those three colleges uh, and I learned a lot when I was there. Uh, First of all, I learned I did not like Abilene. Second of all, I learned that the team doctors uh, don't have uh, our best kind of intentions uh, at heart. So again, because I was such a superior athlete, uh, I rolled my ankle uh, during warm-ups, basically walking, uh, and it swelled up real big. I had to be on crutches. I couldn't put any weight on it. And that day, I saw the team doctor. He looked at my ankle and he said, you're fine, you can play. And I said, are you serious? I I can barely walk. And he looked at me and he said, sweetheart, I think you'll be okay. And it made me so mad. I said, fine, tape it up. And I went to go play. But a senior on the team pulled me aside, a guy who I'd kind of become close with. uh, And he said, hey man, you need to know the doctor's first priority is to get you back on the field as soon as possible. They don't really have your health as, as their top priority. And he showed me his arm and several years ago he had broken his elbow and should have had surgery, but the team doctors rushed him back and now he couldn't straighten his arm. He could only go about that far. He could never straighten his arm again. So these people who I should have been able to trust with my health, I couldn't trust because they had ulterior motives. That is in no way the way you should look at Christ. He is a good shepherd. He is a good protector. He says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. No matter the lies that might creep up into your heart that say there's no way God can love you, look at your life. Surely you still stand in condemnation. He says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. Nothing can separate you from my love. There is 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Take confidence. He's a good protector. He's a good savior. So notice what John has just done in this passage. You've been set free from your sin. The evil one cannot touch you. And all of this is because of the one who was born of God. The one who goes above the line. You see, Arius is Jesus. Really what he does is puts all the emphasis back on you. And in Arius' mind, kind of the goal of salvation was man, creation, rising up to God. And so Jesus, in Arius' mind, is just the primary example of this. He's a creature, like the rest of us, a creation below the line, and he kind of finds it in and of himself to rise up to God. So for us, he's just an example of that. He's a trailblazer. But here's the problem with that. That Jesus cannot save you. That Jesus cannot save you. First of all, a Jesus who isn't God cannot save you. How is he going to bring you into the family of God if he isn't in the family of God by his very nature? How is he going to take the wrathful punishment of the entire world, take God's wrath for the elect, if he's just a man? A Jesus who isn't God can't save you. Second of all, that Jesus can't save you because all the effort gets put back on you. And here's the reality. You and I have never been able to rise up to God. If we want to be saved, we need God to come down to us. And as the church is battling Arianism, they didn't just stop with the affirmation that the Son, Jesus, goes above the line, the creator category. They also affirm that for us and for our salvation, the Son came down in the incarnation to live below the line. Let me read the rest of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, all things visible and indivisible, and the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created. The same essence as the Father, through him all things came into being. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will never end. Jesus is God, goes above the line, but also for us and for our salvation, he came down in the incarnation, was made human. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He doesn't cease to be God. While remaining what he was, he became what he was not. The eternal God, the Son, became a man while remaining God. He doesn't cease to be God in any way, but he was made man in the incarnation for our salvation. See, the focus of the early church is the exact focus of this text. We cannot rise up to God. We cannot defeat sin on our own. We cannot uh, break the chains of sin in our own lives. We can't fight against the evil one by our own power. We can't fight against his touch. If you or I want to be saved, God himself has to come down to us and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that is exactly what the one who was born of God did. Only the one who is eternally born of God could cause us to be born of God. Only the true son of God by nature could cause us to be sons and daughters by adoption. Only the true son of God could save us. So get your focus off of yourself and on him. Stop looking to yourself 
for your assurance. There's no assurance there. There's no hope there. The foundation of this text, the, the we know, the great assurance that we have is founded on him, not on us or our ability. It is precisely because of us and our inability that he came down. Don't look to yourself for your hope. Look to him and you will find your ultimate hope. He's the one that came down. So set your focus on him. Set your trust in him. We've been set free from our sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're protected from the evil one. He cannot touch us. All of this is because of he who was born of God. There's one more thing that John wants us to grab hold of. The last thing he says is take confidence that your Savior has brought you into the kingdom of God. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. See, here's the second we know in this passage. And the first thing that it says is we know that we are from God, uh, essentially a synonym to born of God. This idea that because we've been brought into God's family, we're now from God, right? We're of God. That's the first thing that we know. Secondly, we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The evil one, the devil, has ruled this world ever since Genesis 3. Adam and Eve and you and I after uh, were meant to rule, reign and rule in this world as God's image bearers, but we surrendered that authority uh, in the fall. Satan himself says as, mu- says as much as he's tempting Jesus in Luke 4, uh, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, I will g- to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. Jesus himself calls the devil the ruler of this world several times throughout the Gospels. So the devil rules this world. Let me give some quick clarifiers. That doesn't mean that the devil in any way rules outside of God's sovereign power. Right? We've talked about this at length. The, the devil, uh, God has the devil on a leash. There's no, he, he does not rule outside of God's sovereign power. Uh, this doesn't mean that morally neutral things uh, are somehow the devil's property. Right, just because it uses the word world. That's kind of how you know, people in my grandmother's church would talk about rock music. That's the devil's music. Right? Or if you drink alcohol, that's the devil's water. It's like Ricky Bobby's mom. Everything's the devil. Uh, that's not at all what John is saying here. He's talking about the sinful world, not morally neutral things. Uh, another clarifier, uh, this image of the devil ruling the world does not in any way mean those whom he is ruling over somehow want to be free from his captivity. We can get this kind of false idea that because the devil is a wicked ruler, those whom he is ruling over, unbelievers, just want to follow God if they could just break free from his rule. That is in no way the biblical picture of the natural state of man's heart. Naturally, man loves his sin, loves his wicked ruler, his father, the devil, and hates God. So don't get that false picture in your mind uh, either. Just the fact that the devil's ruling doesn't mean unbelievers are just waiting to be free from him. So the devil rules this world continually. The whole world lies in his power. But for believers, John is saying that evil, wicked world ruled by the devil that lies in his power, you are no longer a part of. You've been brought into God's kingdom. You are from God, you are of God. And the way he's emphasizing this is by kind of creating this sharp contrast between those who are of God and those who are of the devil. 
several months ago, we were, my wife and I and little Harvey were going to go travel. We're showing Harvey off to the family. This is all before Corona hit. And we were in a DFW airport and they're super early because I'm overly cautious. And uh, two men on the DFW social media team uh, were walking around with a camera and a Dr. Seuss book. And they came up to us and said, it's Dr. Seuss day in a couple of days can we uh, record you reading to your kid uh, and we're going to make a video of you and other parents and then we're going to release it on Dr. Seuss Day. And we had like three and a half hours. So we said, sure. So they give me the mic and the book and they said, please begin. And I said, well, don't I need my son? And they said, no, it's fine. So I thought this is a little weird. Maybe they'll just use my voice or they'll like get a close up of me turning the pages or something like that. So I read uh, and then I gave the book to Claudia and she read to Harvey and then they left and we left. And four days later, we're like, oh yeah, let's watch that video. So we tune in to their Twitter page and we see this video and there are about six families that they recorded. Uh, I am the only male and I'm the only one in the whole video without a kid. So if you're watching the video, there are these two completely different groups. There's loving mothers reading to their children, and there's this weird creep reading a Dr. Seuss book to himself by himself in the airport, right? And so John similarly is creating this sharp contrast to show there are those who are of the devil, those who lie in his power, the whole world that lies in his power, but you have been brought in to God's kingdom. You are from God. You've been brought into the very kingdom of God. This great kingdom hope that the prophets prophesied about when a messianic king would come and reign eternally in his kingdom and the nations would flood in to hear the good news. John is saying this is a reality for us. Colossians 1.13 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to his kingdom, to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sin. You've been brought out. You've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. And just to be clear, John isn't giving some sort of escape message. Like you should leave society and then, you know, go in a cave like some sort of hyper uh, ascetic monk. Rather, he's giving the same message that Jesus prays uh, in John 17 when he prays to the father uh, about the disciples. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This text is simply saying, as you navigate this wicked, devil-ruled world, know who you belong to and the kingdom that you've been brought into. Though the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, you are from God. You've been brought into his kingdom by your Savior. So take confidence that your Savior has brought you into the kingdom of God. You've been set free from your sin. You've been protected. You're continually protected from the evil one's power. You've been brought into the kingdom of God. All of this is because of the one who was born of God. The point of this whole passage, is just, it's just as if John is saying, look at what your savior has done and take great confidence in him. Don't try and defeat your sin in your own power. He's the founder and the perfecter of your faith. Don't walk in fear. Don't be paralyzed by self-condemnation as if the devil could touch you. He's given you an eternal hope that the evil one cannot touch. Don't walk in fear in this devil-ruled world. Rather, realize you've been brought into God's kingdom. You're of God. You are from God. 
Don't follow a false uh, Arius' view of Jesus that just puts all the focus back on you. There's no salvation there. Rather, look to the true God, the Son, who came down in the incarnation to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Christ has done an incredible work on our behalf. So take confidence in your Savior. Uh, We began this sermon by looking at a story uh, of Martin Luther, and I want to end by reading uh, a song that he wrote, a song that we actually sing here at Parkway, and it's a song that's written uh, kind of on the very theme of this text today. In the midst of a devil-ruled world, in the midst of sin, in the midst of uh, our own sins that could lead to self-condemnation, we have a great Savior and a great protector that we look to. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of moral ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. If we in our own strength confide, our striving will be losing. We're not the right man on our side, a man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name from age to age the same, and he will win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. A mighty fortress is our God. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that it is in no way up to us for our own salvation. If it were, there would be no hope. Yet we're so tempted to look to ourselves, we're so tempted to look to our own abilities, even if we're sure of our salvation on a daily basis, we think. It's up to us to earn it. From day to day, sanctification is up to us, and all the while your scriptures are screaming just to look to you, not just for our salvation from the darkness, but for our continued sanctification. So I pray that your spirit would uh, allow this text to press firmly upon our hearts that we would no longer look to our own efforts. We would look to you. We would worship knowing that you have done everything. You've done what we couldn't. And we would just rest knowing that you are our protector. You've set us free from sin. You protect us from the evil and you brought us into your very kingdom, not just to sit in the corner, but to know the king, the king of kings. We praise you for who you are. Pray in your son's name. Amen.